Det här är ett poddradioprogram från Studentradion 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradion 98,9. Av upphovsrättsliga skäl är musiken förkortad. Utrikespolitik. Det är inga pajaskonster. Det är inte hehe och hepp Sumo by The Bland. Uh, welcome Radio UF at Student Radio 98,9. Uh, today we will talk a bit about what's going on with the COVID vaccines in the world because uh, things looked fairly dark this autumn when confirmed cases of corona were rising all over the world and the second wave that we all feared, uh, it was suddenly reality. However, there was light in the tunnel The vaccines were showing better and better effectiveness. And in December, the Western superpowers, um, the UK, the US, and finally also the EU, they approved the usage of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Already then we saw how political the approval, purchasing and distribution of the vaccine was and is. The wealthy countries have secured their relatively large share, I think we can say, of the vaccines and international cooperation has been put on a test. Uh, People that dream of traveling abroad, they have been told that all they need is a vaccine passport to be able to cross borders again. And this is a documentation which, of course, also has created uh, political disputes. For example, for example, in Europe. And last but not least, we must not forget that there also are a lot of people in Europe and the world that are strongly opposed to even taking the vaccine, the so-called anti-vaxxers. So uh, this and more we will try to uh, discover at today's episode of Radio UF. And in the studio, I also have with me a person. Do you want to introduce yourself? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm Greta and I'm going to be talking about the so-called vaccine wars between the UK and the EU. Yes, and we're looking very much forward to hear more about that. Will we we will be back in just a second. Welcome back to Radio UF. You just listened to Pine by Unusual Demont at Student Radio 98.9 and today we're talking about the vaccines that most people or many people at least seem to really want um, including both the UK and the EU and we can say that there has not been um, 
the best uh, of uh, what should we say behavior friendship <laughs> at the border uh, between Northern um, Ireland and Ireland lately. Um, Greta, do you want to explain a bit more about what's been going on there? Thank you. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what have been dubbed the vaccine wars between the UK and the EU. There's a lot to unpack here, so I'll start just by reminding you of recent events. So first, back in January, AstraZeneca informed the EU that they would be receiving only 60% of the vaccine doses they ordered. This comes down to production issues in Belgium and the Netherlands, which are supposed to be only secondary production sites. However, the UK sites also producing the AstraZeneca vaccine haven't had any issues, so the UK hasn't faced problems in receiving the vaccine. EU leaders say AstraZeneca is prioritising the UK in its deliveries. This is kind of true. AstraZeneca said that they can supply the EU from their UK production sites, but only once the UK has received all of the vaccines it ordered. In Britain, it seems a bit strange to us that the EU is simultaneously saying, this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is shoddy and ineffective. It doesn't work on the over 65s or on the variants. But can we have some more, please? That said, these supply issues come as Pfizer has also failed to supply 12.5 million vaccines it promised the EU before the end of 2020. Secondly, because of the lack of vaccines, Brussels announced on the 29th of January that it would be introducing controls on the vaccines made in the EU. However, the issue for the UK was that these export controls would also affect Northern Ireland. And if you're aware of this delicate situation on the island of Ireland, you will know that many, many hours were spent hashing out how Brexit could happen without enforcing a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. The history behind this is that as part of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which was a peace deal brokered between Ireland and the UK, both governments agreed that the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland should be practically invisible. It was very much a sticking point of the Brexit divorce, and the EU spent years insisting that it wouldn't sign any deal which would create a hard border. After Brexit, there is a new set of rules known as the Northern Ireland Protocol, ensuring seamless movement between the two countries, which came into force on the 1st of January this year. The trouble is, the EU is now worried that the lack of checks between Ireland and Northern Ireland could turn the region into a backdoor for vaccines to be sent to Britain. Therefore, it took less than a month for the EU to invoke Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which states that the protocol can be overridden in the case of serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties. Article 16 is only supposed to be used in serious cases. So if the UK considered invoking it now, this shows that Brussels is seriously worried about the vaccine shortages. However, in an exceptional display of unity, the governments of London, Dublin and Belfast all condemned Brussels' invoking of Article 16 and Brussels backed down. That is a very complicated way of saying nothing happened. But the fallout of this non-event will likely be very serious. It really doesn't bode well for EU-UK relations. And some British politicians might now feel that the EU has given the UK the green light to invoke Article 16 to override the protocol for their own purposes. Already, British Minister Michael Gove has written to Brussels demanding certain changes to the trading agreements on the island of Ireland. So in short, these vaccine wars could have serious ramifications for post-Brexit relations. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound too great. Like you said, they've been spending years trying to find a good way to um, sort of secure an open and uh, free border there. But do you think, like, who's gaining from this situation? Is it the pro-Brexit supporters that get to criticize the EU once again? Or 
Definitely. I mean, for so Matthew Goodwin, who's a professor of politics at the University of Kent, said that for people who voted to leave, it has given them hope that a post-Brexit UK is not only viable, but potentially successful. And also for people that oppose uh, the current Brexit arrangements in Northern Ireland, this is kind of stoking their fire and basically saying that, you know, the UK should be pushing harder to use Article 16 and override parts of the deal that don't work for the UK. And it's definitely made the EU look very bad in, in Ireland in the UK's eyes. I see. Yeah, no, it's uh, very interesting, this whole, you know, international cooperation versus the different countries uh, um, securing vaccines for themselves. And if you just stay tuned, we will be back talking a bit more about that in a second. You just listened to Smoa by Nadia Evelina uh, here at Studentradio 98,9. We are Radio UF and today we're talking about the corona vaccine and the politics behind it. Um, and um, as I think we have all heard quite a lot about by now, the EU have sort of um, the EU member states have come together to negotiate um the vac- how many vaccines they will purchase, etc., on behalf of the entire union. But how does this vaccine scheme actually work, Greta? Well, the scheme allows the EU to purchase vaccine on behalf of its members. Uh, and the aim of that is to reduce costs and avoid competition between the EU member states. Uh, it's important to mention that membership of the scheme is not compulsory, but all 27 member states have signed up. National governments are still allowed to negotiate their own deals, but only with the vaccine producers with whom the EU doesn't already have an agreement. And the main example of that that's being cited is Hungary, who's agreed to buy two million doses of the Russian vaccine Sputnik V. Yes. And um, what is also interesting is that, for example, Norway and uh, Iceland, who are not even part of the EU, they have sort of, you know, found a way to... um, become part of this uh, EU vaccine scheme um, uh, through their EEA agreement. Um, And uh, Norway, they have considered to benefit greatly from this. Uh, uh, For you that might not be too familiar with this, is this... um, they are not a member, but still, um, (laughs) like I heard this Norwegian um, uh, Europe expert once... um, tell me that they're still 75% members of the EU. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's through that agreement that they have been able to um, secure that uh, they will also get um, a share of the vaccine doses that the EU purchases. And, um, uh, well, um, this basically also means that, you know, when EU uh, approves a vaccine, it automatically becomes an approved vaccine in Norway as well. And um, Norway has even been so lucky, I think we can say, to have um, the Swedish vaccine coordinator in the EU, uh, Richard Bergström. Um, he, he's negotiating on behalf of um, Sweden to make sure that they get as many vaccines as they want to in the EU. But he's also doing that on behalf of Norway and Iceland as well. And um, at least the Norwegian um, government have been very clear that um, the, you know, going this way through um, the Swedish coordinator and through, sorry, the EU has been the right way to go. And I must also say for a country that has 
voted no to EU membership twice, they have been <laughs> very positive towards this EU cooperation um, and help that they've gotten now during the pandemic. And I've also seen a very limited critique uh, in the media. Um, and I wouldn't really say that there has been any, at least any strong debate when it comes to if Norway should have gone by themselves and bought vaccines instead. Um, and, you know, this uh, Mr. Bagström, he's also, you know, been seen as sort of the savior in Norway. <laughs> I've seen headlines where it's been like, this is the guy that gets Norway's all the vaccines, etc. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's very interesting how the vaccines suddenly have t- turned to a very like pro-European perspective from at least Norway. But I have also heard that that's not <laughs> necessarily the case across the pond in the UK. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, from a British perspective, this is probably the only time I have been and ever will be happy that the UK decided to do something on their own. Um, The government is definitely pushing the rhetoric that it is thanks to Brexit that the UK has had such a successful vaccination programme. That's not true. Even if we were still an EU member, we wouldn't have had to join the EU vaccine scheme. And technically, as the scheme was introduced whilst we were still in the Brexit transition period, we still could have joined the EU vaccine scheme. We decided not to, so the situation was pretty much identical to how it would have been if we were still an EU member. But I I would say it's, it's certainly true that acting outside the EU this time around has been quite beneficial so far. Um, first of all, we've invest- invested a lot more aggressively and a lot earlier than the EU. Um, and that basically has meant that we, as that the, the UK is able to vaccinate people much, much faster. We have more vaccine than the EU. And as it stands, 19 in every 100 Brits have received a vaccine dose compared to only four, uh, four in every 100 within the EU. Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting how suddenly there's been so different results, at least for now, between the UK and Uh, the EU. But uh, stay tuned and we will come back to sort of pros and cons of international corporations (laughs) in just a second. You just heard Paradisco by Volleyball. Welcome back to Radio UF at Studentradio 98,9. We are discussing uh, the corona vaccines and more specifically also why the UK has vaccinated so many more people per capita than the EU has has been able to. Why is that, uh, do you think, Greta? Well, we definitely secured deals sooner with vaccine producers, but that is partly because we didn't negotiate as hard. The EU is a much, much bigger market than the UK alone, so the EU was able to work a lot harder trying to shift liability clauses in contracts. And so the EU probably has a more favourable deal, but they just got it later. Also, the EU, as we mentioned before, has been suffering from a lack of vaccines. And it's not for a lack of trying on the EU's part. Uh, There was an early initiative by the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, to steal away CureVac by offering 80 million euros in financial backing. However, they're still yet to release that vaccine. So it seems like the EU just kind of put all of its eggs in baskets of, of companies and in vaccines that are not yet delivering. Also, the UK vaccine agency, the MHRA, has approved vaccines much, much faster than the EU. It's an extremely well-respected agency. Also, the UK has kind of followed one policy of basically trying to get as many people their first jab as possible, because the idea is that one dose already provides quite a lot of protection. 
And it is in, in Europe that's kind of seen as a risky strategy because increasing the gap between doses might reduce the vaccine's effectiveness. But in terms of figures, it comes across as the UK's vaccinating people really, really quickly. Uh, and also, of course, one benefit of, benefit of acting alone is that you avoid the added bureaucracy of working with 27 other countries. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's definitely also a very good point. I think doing something by yourself is far easier than having to have your 26 other friends <laughs> to agree with you as well. But I still think that because, you know, for instance, well, Germany is kind of seen as sort of the, what should we say, superpower yeah. in the EU. And I mean, they they also had the opportunity to go by themselves uh, at one point and just secure vaccines for their country and not the rest. But I still think at least uh, members of the EU uh, now feel sort of also is this sort of common responsibility that the UK probably isn't feeling or I think we know that they aren't feeling as part of anymore uh, which also feel uh, like for instance Angela Merkel could not out of you know pure European um, spirit go by herself <laughs> and ditch um, the rest of the union kind of. Yeah I mean it's it's an interesting one because Germany did try to, as you said they did try to procure some vaccine for themselves separately of the EU and the European Commission's refused to say whether or not that was within the rules or not but yeah like it's definitely I think in Britain there's generally speaking a feeling of well we have the AstraZeneca vaccine we're vaccinating people fast like we're sorry for the EU because you've got to feel sorry for the EU they've had problems with Pfizer Moderna and AstraZeneca so we I think people feel bad but at the same time this is a pandemic where people are trying to look after their own loved ones. And so you kind of think, if my family is okay, if my family is getting vaccinated, then I'm not going to worry too much about it. So no, it's not a, it's not a spirit of solidarity, but we definitely, we've, this is the first time in the pandemic we've actually been world beating at something. So we're kind of happy about it. <laughs> no, I also get that. That's totally understandable. And I mean, uh, I think also an important point from the EU perspective is that they, um, you know, health is usually a national competency. So this is not really anything they have been doing before. And um, I think, well, it's also very, very logical that there, there would be some issues on the way. It wouldn't just run smoothly when, um, yeah, like you said, 27 countries are coming together to um, try to secure uh, vaccines for uh, all their populations during a global pandemic. So, yes, uh, more about that and also about the vaccine passports um, that have sort of become the next step after people have been vaccinated. <laughs> so we will be back with that in just a second. You just heard Not Around by Rit Momne. Uh, welcome back to Radio UF at Student Radio 98.9. We are um, discussing the corona vaccines. And now I think we've come to a point where we need to reflect a bit on what will be happening when people have been vaccinated. There's been a lot of talk about these vaccine passports or certificates that will, you know... If you have one, you will be able to travel or you will be able to go to festivals, etc. 
but it's more complicated than that, I think we can say. Some people and countries are very much for it, some are against. Greta, what do you think? How do you think the British people will uh, look at such an implementation of a vaccine passport? Well, in typical Boris Johnson's government style, within one week, ministers have announced that vaccine passports are not going to be introduced in the UK, but also that they might be introduced. Um, (laughs) On the one hand, we have vaccine minister Nadeem Sahawi saying that there are many reasons why we'll not have vaccine passports in the UK, namely that vaccination is not mandatory. And in the UK, we do things by consent. On the other, we have Transport Secretary Grant Shapps saying that the government is considering introducing a vaccine certificate. However, there are currently no plans to introduce a vaccine passport to go to public places within Britain. And the fact that the government is looking at the technology to introduce vaccine passports has already been met with criticism. Uh, The argument is that such passports could infringe civil liberties. And I think that this is a very cultural issue specific to the UK. We have for a long time had a big issue with compulsory identification. Like we don't even carry ID cards in the UK. And I actually recall an episode of British sitcom Yes Minister, where the idea of introducing a compulsory European identification card was met with cries of, they'll say I'm introducing a police state. Um, The last Labour government did attempt to introduce ID cards, but it was scrapped by the coalition government in 2011, arguing that such a scheme was an infringement upon civil liberties. And in the words of the Countess of Mar, it was not just identity cards that presented a problem of more of much more concern to me and others was the National Identity Register. As Liberty always maintained, these are costly and completely unnecessary intrusion on people's personal lives. And the idea was that when ID cards were due to be introduced in Britain, the National Identity Register was set to contain 50 categories of information on each citizen, including fingerprints, face and iris scans, and current and past places of residence. So the issue people really have is with the biometric data that a kind of vaccine card could hold. And interestingly, it was the Prime Minister who attempted to introduce identity cards in the first place, Tony Blair, who was the first to suggest that Britain should introduce vaccine passports. All that being said, I do think that vaccine passports might become a practical necessity because the pressure may not come from government, but from service providers who ask you to show proof of vaccination vaccination before you uh, can enter their establishment. And uh, we're already seeing that with travel companies. For example, Saga is requiring cruise passengers to already have been vaccinated in order to come abroad. Yeah, no, I mean, um, um, in that sense, you know, for, um, you know, Uh, airline companies, cruise ships, anything like that, if they get the chance to require something like that, I think um, also people uh, will, you know, suddenly be more willing to um, carry one as well. Though, uh, like you said, different countries have different sort of cultures with these kind of things. For instance, in Sweden, um, I would say that sort of the attitudes, at least for now, towards such a vaccine passport is a lot more positive. And um, the government just announced last week or so that, you know, by the 1st of June this year, they will have developed some sort of digital vaccine passport that will make you able to attend larger events and even travel abroad, is what they said. And also the Swedish government has even instructed the um, Swedish Public Health Agency to sort of uh, work on developing an international standardized certificate as well, among others through uh, the World Health Organization, WHO. Yeah, no, so it will be really interesting to see how 
this development goes, I think we have some more <laughs> that we need to discuss about this. So we will be back in just a sec. You just heard Prom by Augustine here at Studentradio 98,9. We are Radio UF and um, as we previously talked about, it can become a problem when uh, we have to start carrying uh, certificates uh, saying if we have been vaccinated or not for COVID-19. I think we talked a bit about it before um, the last song, but also that, you know, It will create a whole inequality problem. Who has the resources? Kind of um, division again, once again, between uh, the rich Western countries and uh, less developed countries. And um, I can imagine that, you know, rich, wealthy people will want to go on their cruise ships um, (laughs) while others have been told that they will probably not get enough vaccines until like 2022 or 23. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking a lot about the the Western sort of vaccine wars and that's been very dramatic in Europe. But at the end of the day, the big losers will be the poorer countries because squabbling among the rich ends up driving up the prices for everyone else. And it's a real serious case of vaccine nationalism. Um, but I do think that it's quite a systemic problem because the system itself allows for this kind of nationalist thinking. It's a system of buying doses, of pitting one country against another. Whoever can afford the vaccine gets the vaccine. But that is also a problem. Like if if only certain countries are vaccinated uh, or like their populations are vaccinated, the, the pandemic is still going to continue to exist. And it was only in September last year that Boris Johnson said at the UN General Assembly that the health of every country depends on the whole world having access to safe and effective vaccine wherever a breakthrough might occur. After all, the virus knows no borders. Um, and one thing that I've been looking at recently is the response to this problem, which has been the COVAX initiative, which aims to distribute 2 million vaccines to parts of the world where there is a shortage. And it's in particular countries that have been accused of vaccine nationalism and of hoarding vaccines that are donating to the scheme, with the UK being the largest single country donor. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's definitely a good initiative. It's just as far as what I have heard from Norway and other European countries is that they will donate the vaccines that they no longer need, Mm. which I think it's definitely good they're doing something. I think they um, ought to do that after... um, a lot of critique from, for instance, international uh, NGOs, etc. But um, I think we'll see uh, we'll see when the action and vaccine um, donation actually happens. Or what do you say? Definitely. I mean, even if they get what was it, two billion vaccines uh, to different parts of the world where there's a shortage, that's still not enough. You know, that's that's not going to cover all of the, the whole of the global south. Um, and especially, I suspect there'll be problems as well with. Um, you know, okay, the AstraZeneca vaccine is much easier to store, but you know, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees. Um, we already have problems just supplying Europe and the and the UK. So I really wonder how it's going to work when we bring the rest of the world. Well, when I mean, the rest of the world's already part of it, obviously, but when we actually start prioritizing other parts of the world other than ourselves, how that's actually going to function. Yeah, no, definitely. And I also think the interesting part here is that um, when, you know, these American or German or uh, British pharmaceutical companies um, don't have the capacity to sell to 
to more countries, then who are the ones um, standing there ready to sell vaccines? Yes, it's Russia and China <laughs> so all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, uh, portraying themselves as the heroes that are actually helping out the people yeah. that are left behind. So um, I think there's definitely a lot more to the whole uh, vaccine diplomacy that we haven't seen um, the end of yet. That's a really interesting point. And also it's interesting to note that like even the countries that are able to that have like invented the vaccines that have produced the vaccines are prioritizing themselves. And we've seen that with AstraZeneca, um, with the way that it's basically said, well, our UK plants are for the UK. Once we finish dealing with the whole of the UK population, then yeah, the exactly. EU, then you can have yours, you know, like already we've got issues with this. So it's it's definitely something that governments need to look at and it's going to need an international perspective for sure. Oh, definitely. Um, we will be right back. <laughs> you just heard again by Nike, Adia and Jesse 5K here at Student Radio 98,9. We are Radio UF and I think we've covered quite a lot of aspects concerning the corona vaccine um, in today's episode. I think Yeah, it will be interesting to see um, how this develops. Do you have any thoughts, Greta? (laughs) (laughs) What does the future hold? Chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really don't know, honestly. It's going to be interesting to see, like, when you look at countries that are doing really well right now, like Israel, that definitely gives us a bit of hope. But then you've also got horror stories of, like, the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't work on the South Africa variant. What are we going to do? So we've just, right now, I'm just praying that everything's going to work okay. I mean, the British government definitely isn't giving me much hope. They're telling us, like, don't book your summer holiday. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought this. I thought the pandemic was going to be over in a month. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, true, same. <laughs> but I think I would also blame Anna Swulberg, the Norwegian Prime Minister, for this. Because in December, she told Norway that... Um, we would probably be able to go on a summer holiday abroad in like Southern Europe, for instance. So um, we'll see about that. (laughs) We're only in February for now. But yeah, no, I definitely think, you know, Corona has brought up so many issues that the world has to deal with. Mm. Like UK, EU, for instance. Inequality is getting worse. Exactly. And sort of the whole, are we willing to give up all our personal information, for instance, to Mm. be able to go on to a concert or (laughs) (laughs) to, I don't know, to go abroad again, I guess. So, yeah, no, it will definitely be interesting to see. And so what would you say is your main take from this episode? <laughs> oh, a big question. <laughs> My main take is that uh, vaccine nationalism is a real thing. And it's something that even though I'm standing here saying it's worked out really well for the UK that so far, touch wood, uh, that we have not gone with the EU this time around. It's definitely true that for the rest of the world, it is not helpful to have squabbling rich countries. And it is not helpful that countries are just trying to buy up as much vaccine they can for themselves. So yeah, that's my main take is that vaccine nationalism is going to be a serious issue. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, Totally, I think if we uh, weren't surprised already by uh, all the issues that Corona would give us, that no one, not even uh, the EU Commission or the British government or <laughs> Swedish government or anyone would 
know how to solve. So I guess we just have to live with the uncertainty of the future. <laughs> We're used to it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess we uh, should be happy that we're just safe and sound here in Uppsala for now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thank you so much, Greta, for joining me tonight. And uh, we will hopefully be back with a new episode very soon. So have a great evening and thanks for listening. Thank you. Det här var en poddradioversion av ett program från Studentradio 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradio 98,9. Att lyssna fritt är stort, att lyssna rätt är större.